You want to bring it in? <laughs> no, I'll let you. It's, it's still your, your shindig. <laughs> Back to the bin. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is part two of our, what I'm calling a Back to the Bins trade paperback. Uh, I'm Paul Spataro and I'm once again joined by Dave Weeder. It's Hello. like I never left in a lot of ways. <laughs> it is, it is indeed. Uh, and now people are going to think we're recording these back to back because you said not, not this time, not this time. Just to pull back the curtain, we're actually a week later. And it'll be a week later when people hear it, so that works yeah. out perfect. And so if you'll recall, we are covering the Daredevil Black Spectre saga of 1974, which happens to coincide with when I started collecting comics. So to me, this is pretty cool. And for Dave, this is like before he existed. So. Yeah, before I was born. Yeah, I was going to make the joke, but you took it from me. So I don't, I don't know if it's as cool for him. But, you know, last time around, we did Daredevil 109, which was my first issue ever of Daredevil. Today we're doing Marvel Two and One number three, which is my first issue ever of Marvel Two and One. So and now you have a full run. Uh, no, I'm still missing issue number five. Ow! Oh. Which I had at one time, but for some reason I do, no, I do not have at this point. And I, I had just gotten issue number one. Thank you to uh, Socrates. Uh, and uh, I'm look I'm on the lookout for number five, but I am, if nothing else, frugal. So I'm not willing to spend top dollar for it. But it should be a lot easier to find than number one. So I'm thinking I'll come up with it at some point. Anyway, uh, where let's see, where did we leave off? There was the uh, the money was being tossed from the rooftops on Wall Street. The people were going crazy. Necra had beaten the crap out of Black Widow and uh, and, and said she wanted to have her join them. Uh, Foggy was recovering from being shot, and I think we ended off with Shanna the She-Devil walking in on uh, on, on Matt Murdock, Foggy, and Police Commissioner O'Hara from San Francisco. Is that about right? That's exactly where we left off, but every time I hear O'Hara, I think of Batman. <laughs> Bagora! <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was an influence over it. Yeah. I was thinking today, when we finished this... I would not mind going back and covering the two last issues of Shanna, which kind of, in some ways, is a little bit of a setup for this story. Mm-hmm. So I would not mind doing that. But I, you know, we'll, let's we'll cover the six issues of this mini series effectively, or this trade paperback effectively, and then at some point we could go back and look at those two. Yeah, and I think there's an issue of Kazar in there as well. And I know Defenders number twenty-five ties in somehow. Was number 25. I'm going to have to look to see what that was. No, I thought that was the uh, Serpent Squad. Or the Serpent, whatever. I'd have to double-check my facts on that, but there's some issue of Defenders that loosely ties in. I think Gerber was writing that, too. He was. Defenders 25, yeah, that's with the Sons of the Serpent. And I do not remember it tying into this, but there may have been some subtle tie-in that I don't recall. Yeah. 
maybe something. I'll I'll look it up instead of speaking out of turn. That's what you get, kids, when you don't do your prep. <laughs> so I might as well bring us right in with Mobile Tune One Number Three, which is from May of 1974, presenting the Thing and Daredevil. Uh, the cover depicts the Thing ripping a hole into a roof as Daredevil swings or drops into the building where a slew of Black Spectre soldiers are shooting up at him, none of which can actually hit him, and Necra and the Black Widow are inside as well. Uh, I did not look up who drew it, but from the appearance, I would say it's absolutely a Gil Kane drawing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's pretty solid. I'm not crazy about the... It's not. I was going to say I'm not crazy about the thing's face, and it's really not that. I don't like the... Uh, action lines around his head. They just yeah, seem see to make it a bit too cartoony for me. But Daredevil looks great. Yeah, I think he looks great. And and in, you know, pretty small, but I think Black Widow looks really good, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Necra lacks a little detail, but she's very small. I also like the perspective on the city, which is not taking up a great deal of the cover, but it is there. So th- I think my only real criticism is the little action lines around the thing because they just, like I said, they make it a little too cartoony for me. Yeah, I also a- question whether or not you, if you broke into a roof, whether or not you could bend it up like that. Only if you're the thing, because he can do stuff like that all the time. Okay, but- we'll just accept that. <laughs> yeah, we'll just accept that. That's my no prize. So his, he's uh, on it. He's saying, "Move it, Hornhead. It's kill or be killed." And he says, "Daredevil responds, but I can't. I can't." Not one one of those I must destroy is the Black Widow. Dun, dun, dun. Story is written by Steve Gerber, art by Sal Buscema, inked by Joe Sinnott. Dave Hunt is the letterer, Petra Goldberg the colorist, and Roy Thomas is the editor. Story opens in Reed Richards' lab, where he's performing some tests on Wondar, a super-powered 22-year-old with the mind of a toddler. At the same time... In what appears to be poor use of space, the thing is exercising in the same general area, doing one-armed standing press of a 5,000-pound barbell while using his other hand to hold on to an exercise magazine that he's reading. (laughs) Reed concludes that Wondar does not have any brain damage and has a lower intelligence level only due to the fact that he spent his life in some sort of sensory deprivation. Reed's machines explode as a result of some questionable scientific reasoning, blowing a hole into the side of the building. Meanwhile, Daredevil is swinging by and almost clobbered by a piece of flying debris, causing him to release his billy club and fall to his apparent demise. But wait, being ever so resourceful, Dee Dee slows his descent by grabbing a hook on a crane, and then a flagpole, and an awning, ultimately coming to a somewhat less than picturesque landing on his buttocks. A local police officer clues Dee Dee in to the fact that the explosion came from the Baxter building, and Daredevil goes to retrieve his billy club. He meets up with the Thing, and they go up to the headquarters. Reed creates a new costume for Wondar to contain his explosive power, and then reaches through the gaping hole in the building and gets the billy club. The Thing stomps off to dress the young man, which I'm sure feels very inappropriate for him. And Daredevil takes his leave and meets up with San Francisco Police Commissioner O'Hara, his niece, Shanna the She-Devil, at her apartment. Her father was murdered in Africa by a mutant madman called the Mandrel. She's been searching for him, but has not been able to find him. His, her father's will left every penny of his 
diamond mine that I guess he owned to someone named Hensley Fargus, who she thinks is the mandrel. Because of that, she believes that somehow her father's money is funding the Black Spectre. Matt Murdock goes to the streets and meets up with Foggy Nelson's sister Candace to go to a play that she invited him to in our previous issue. The play opens with the Statue of Liberty on stage and a black man dressed as a slave monologuing to it about the inequities in society. In response, a man dressed as Captain America bursts out and starts to beat on him. Matt is appalled by his, because his enhanced senses let him realize that the beating is really happening. However, another actor, dressed as Adolf Hitler, comes out and shoots the ersatz cap for real, and then shoots himself in the head. The audience starts to panic, and in the excitement, Matt manages to separate himself from Candace and changes into his daredevil costume. He sees a fleeing Black Spectre soldier and gives chase, which makes the soldier happy because it gives them an opportunity to test out their secret weapon. As D.D. takes out the soldier, he's karate-chopped in the neck by a hand clad in black with wrist fingers. Hmm, I wonder who that is. We also see legs with black tights and the silhouette of a female form fleeing into a dirigible, leaving Daredevil to wonder how she has aligned herself with the Black Spectre. Back to the Baxter building, where Wondar is in his new outfit, leaving us to wonder, between this and Namor's outfit, why Reed could possibly think he has the skill, any skill whatsoever as a clothes designer. <laughs> ben sees Daredevil quietly swing into the building through the opening in the side that was earlier in our story, created earlier in our story, to borrow a fantastic car without asking. As he tries to figure out how to use it, the thing grabs him from behind, D.D. kicks the thing in order to try and make a quick departure, but to no avail. Once he explains what's going on, the thing takes him to follow the dirigible, which has not gotten too far away. They land on top of it and are surprised to hear a clang sound, leading them to conclude that it is a jet craft, jet craft built to look like a blimp. The thing gets out of the fantastic car, only to be jolted by the electrified hull, he rips through the hull, recreating the cover scene, and drops down into the craft. Necro orders the soldiers to attack with the living power of hate. She claws at the thing, and Black Widow uses his stingers on him, but neither have any particular effect. He makes his way into a jungle area with a giant mandrel idol, where the leader of the Black Spectre is standing. Daredevil follows into the craft after his patience ends, and battles the soldiers, but is attacked from front and behind by Necra and the Black Widow, who has tears in her eyes. The thing makes his way to the leader and tears at his cowl, but immediately falls under some type of hypnotic effect. At the order of the leader, he and D.D. are placed into the Fantastic Car to set and tossed from the ship. As it plummets, Daredevil regains consciousness and is able to activate the controls and pull them out of the dive. The Thing tells Daredevil that he wants another shot at this, but Daredevil says that it's his war to fight, because why would you want a super strong ally? Yeah. And we're to be continued in the next issue of Daredevil. Just just as an overall, this issue starts out as a fairly common you know, team-up story. A little misunderstanding, common enemy. Then they go to the theater, and, and, and it just flips on its head. Yeah, that's where it really just gets weird. 
Yeah. But but going back to the first time team up, and again, remember that this is my first issue of this. Mm-hmm. I I remember just being kind of I don't know like impressed. It was just a little different than what I anticipated. You know, I had read comics before, and most of my knowledge of the Fantastic Four was probably from uh, the 1968 cartoon, seeing episodes of that. But Daredevil comes in, and the thing says, hey, look who it is. Come on in. Take a load off. Reed, look who's here. You know, like, I don't know. It just seemed so natural to me. Like, these guys are all buddies. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I, I just I remember back then kind of reading that and thinking, hmm, that's interesting, you know? But then when you get, you get to that scene with the play, to me, that's typical Steve Gerber. He yeah. was so off the wall. Like, I'm still not exactly sure what that was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what what purpose, other than just having the, uh, you know, the audience go nuts and having Daredevil have an opportunity to face off against a, a Black Spectre soldier at the theater, what what storyline is is being played here? I, you know, other than are they trying to play on you know play on racism because you have the uh, you know the ultra conservative American beating up the black slave, and then you have a Nazi shooting the ultra conservative American and then killing himself. I, I'm just not sure exactly what the message is. Well, I get the pecking order that you know there's the minorities who are set upon by the quote unquote American dream. Who you know, getting beat up with shields, being blocked. I I get some of that, and then Hitler shows up, and all I can hear. Have, have you ever seen the producers? Yes. I can, I can only hear Springtime for Hitler when I see his name. <laughs> well, it's the only other play I've ever seen Hitler in. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what the original play would have been like here, but when you have, I mean, I, I assume Captain America was going to knock out Hitler a few times, and it it basically just flips it on its head. It, it goes the opposite way. Because Hitler, I mean, Hitler does what Hitler does, and he shoots himself, but he also kills Captain America. But now, if you look, when they first come to the theater, or when Daredevil first swings over to the theater, you can see the sign says Bijou Theater, and then it says Now Playing, and underneath that, you could just make out the letters T-L-E-R. And something before that, I don't know if it's, yeah, I mean, I assume it's Hitler. Yeah, it looks to say Hitler, so it's not as if Hitler appearing in this play would have been a surprise to the audience. Now, him shooting people would. Uh, you know, I, but if I was sitting in the theater until he shoots himself in the head, I would think it's all theatrics. Yeah. You expect a little, you know, like bongo drum. It's supposed to be a vet guard. It is the seventies. Yeah. But it's, it's just weird though. <laughs> but if you think but, about, I mean, you, I mean, you were younger when you read this, this was on newsstands. This wasn't just in a comic shop. This wasn't polybag. I mean, any kid can put, you know, plop open this issue, have it flop open to this page, and suddenly mommy and daddy have questions. You know? Mommy, well, why I, is this I, happening? I think this is, you know, I think they were trying to appeal to an older audience now. I think I I was not necessarily the target audience at this point. I was at, at this point, so I would have been 11. Uh, I would have been the built-in audience that they expected to have. But I think they were trying to appeal to like college students at this point. Yeah, I can see that. But they, and, and you the only remember, audience they're appealing to, though. Hmm? 
Would that be the only audience they're appealing to? No, I think I think they feel they already have their built-in. You know, this is I'm, I'm speculating over you know, forty years ago, but uh, I, I think uh, I think they felt they had a built-in audience with the younger crowd, and that they probably, and I would say rightfully so, uh, didn't think that the younger crowd would kind of take any subtext from it. Mm. And meanwhile, you know, you hope, you know, I, I'm thinking Steve Gerber's story writing is somewhat influenced by uh, artificial substances. Yeah. <laughs> and allegedly. I think, I think they think, oh, I don't think there's any allegedly about no. it. No. <laughs> but I, I think I think he probably was also expecting that some of his audience was as well. And you got to think if, you know, if you're a little bit, <laughs> a little bit off, at the moment you're reading this, this could certainly seem very trippy. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, I think I think they were trying to appeal to a wider audience in a, in a, in in you know in a lot of what they were doing. Well, I'll admit. I mean, as, as I was reading through this storyline again, and this is going to put some great imagery. And I was on the, I was on the toilet, and I was pretty well going along steadily until I got to this, and suddenly. Suddenly, what the hell? You know, <laughs> it was deep already. I was interested. It was bringing me along. This is the moment where I'm like, this is like nothing I've read before in a mainstream superhero comic, at least from this time. Yeah, you expect well, this kind of thing when you read like Walking Dead. There's going to be something I, I shocking. Think, uh, I think Steve Gerber was one of the more, you know, it was not uncommon for him to have just kind of strange things. I mean, how would the duck being a prime example of it? But he also had the he had that storyline in the Defenders with the midget, uh, not a midget, it's an improper word, the elf, elf with a gun. Do you remember that at all? I don't remember this one. He had he had a a, a subplot going on where every once in a while, like there'd be a couple at home or something, and they'd be talking, and all of a sudden be a knock at the door, and one of the couple would go to open the door and there would be an elf with a gun at the door oh. and he would, and he would shoot them. I don't remember where it went, but they, I remember they that. Did it, yeah. They did it like four times. And then at some point, and I don't remember exactly when it was, I'm pretty sure it was still in the defenders though. The elf is walking across the street and gets hit by a truck and is killed. That's, and that's they, how and it ends. And he never said what was going on or why it was going on. Well, it, it just it's, occurred to me now, because oddly enough, because of the elf, this probably isn't the only instance like this. I mean, we saw race riots last time, the the swastika above the Washington Monument. There's probably several incidents, you know, in in playhouses, coffee houses, concerts, what have you, of of things like this just causing panic. And I think we've learned in, in the last couple of decades that when you get panic there tends to be a reliance on control and safety. And in some cases, people are like, I'm going to give up my freedom because you're going to keep me safe. And that's, I'm not getting political. This is just, this is psychology, mm-hmm. not politics. And you're, you're not commenting on the propriety of it. Exactly. I'm commenting on this make, it just occurred to me that makes sense that the leader here, potentially the mandrel is destabilizing people. He's causing fear in the biggest city on, on in, in the world. And there's probably other locations where this is occurring as well. Yeah, I would say. I mean, it, it would make sense, especially since we have the uh, the scene. Well, we had the scenes last issue in San Francisco with Necro mm-hmm. attacking the Black Widow. Yeah. Uh, just for what it's worth, I I'm on a website right now called the Bronze Age of Blogs. I have no idea who this is, uh, but he's got a, a whoever 
the blogger is on this has a section on the elf with a gun. And he says, uh, the elf with a gun is positive proof of Steve Gerber's absolute total undying genius. I mean, just look at the way Salby Seymour draws him. He's evil, creepy, and funny, and weird at the same time. Uh, what's that you say? That what with a what? You don't know about the elf with a gun? Is that what's troubling you? The elf with a gun first appeared in Sal and Stephen Sal's Defenders number 25. Interesting that that came up again. Mm-hmm. In the middle of an excellent groundbreaking story about the non-team taking on the Sons of the Serpent and bore no relation whatsoever to anything else in that issue, except maybe the fact that the murderous midget's first victim appears to be Roy Thomas. Readers oh. were understandably puzzled. Gerber was giving nothing away. The elf next appeared in Las Vegas in Defenders 31, his second appearance bearing no more relation to the events surrounding him than his first. And some people were clearly getting frustrated. He's got some letters page cut uh, ex- excerpts here. But the elf didn't care. By Defenders 38, he was back, merrily murdering bit pl- part players and confusedly confounding readers everywhere. Uh, but Gerber still wasn't talking. And in issue number 40, our mysterious miscreant came closest to actually being part of the main story when he missed the ever-incredible Hulk by mere seconds. But by this point, Gerber was leaving or had already taken off the book as shown a couple of bitter reposts from the letter page, leaving David oh, leaving David Anthony Kraft to bring us the Elf's final Bronze Age appearance in number 46, and that's when he gets hit by the truck. Oh, so there might have been actually somewhere Gerber was going. Possibly. <laughs> but, but I don't know. He's just He was just... He was kind of off the wall. Now, I met Steve Gerber back in, I would say it was probably in 76, because I think it was when the Howard the Duck for President thing was going on. Get Down America? Yes. Yeah. And we were at a comic convention, and Steve Gerber was there, and we started talking to him, and uh, we had gotten autographs from him. I have no idea where they are now. Uh, and, uh, like, you know, he was he was very friendly, talked to us. Like, there was no... There was no feeling of, yeah, you know, you guys are, are kids and you don't know what I'm, you know, you don't get the parody that I'm really giving here. Uh, you know, he, he spoke to us like we were intelligent and that we did get it even though we didn't. <laughs> and, I, you know, I kind of I kind of like that aspect of him. I thought, you know, he was he 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 played to his audience, I thought, which is good. You know, he, he didn't talk down to us or anything. Even though, like I said, I'm sure in his mind he was like, "Boy, what are these kids don't even know what the, you know what's, what's going on." <laughs> You're clearly not getting it, kid, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly what what the thought process was. So he's the, he's he's no Bruce Bruce Boxleitner, essentially. Yeah, I would say he's the anti or he was the anti Bruce Boxleitner. Yeah. But you but, mentioned Sal Buscema doing the the uh, elf with a gun. He's doing the art here. How are you feeling about the art throughout the issue in general? In general, I like it. I think it's pretty solid. It's clean. Uh, I always like Joe Sinnott's inking as well. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he he is probably the best inker ever for the thing. Yeah, I can see that. I can uh, really see that because he does a great deal with shadows. Yeah, that's, I, I, that's key to the thing. And I was going to say, I, I really like what he does with Daredevil's costume with the shadowing too. Mm-hmm. He he played it up a lot. You know, he didn't just leave it for you know, for the colorist to just put in red. There's a lot of shadows on there. Yeah. And that helps define it because I mean it's one big red blob. But you know, I mean it's it's typical Salbucema, but it's done very well, very clean. Uh which is always you know, I always like 
clean artwork. I, I don't mind stylistic, but I don't like stylistic just for the sake of being stylistic. I want to see stylistic with a purpose. Yeah, I don't want it to lose storytelling for style. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Sal, I think Sal was never one of the most stylistic guys. I think he was he was more like from the uh, the John Romita school. Mm-hmm. Tell the story first. Yeah, tell the story first and give me nice clean images that you could follow easily. Uh, and I, I think he did a good job of it in here. Yeah. Uh, I think this, you know, my my favorite Sal Buscema is when he's inked by Klaus Janssen in a lot of the early issues of the Defenders. And the reasoning being it's the clean style combined with a little stylisticness. Mm-hmm. But the stylisticness doesn't take away from the storytelling because the stylisticness is just in the inking. It's an embellishment. Yes. Because, yeah. you know, the, the actual layouts are all, you know, true Sal Buscema. So I, I think that's that's my favorite of his, but but this is this is pretty up there. And of course, I'm a big you, fan of Sal Buscema's Hulk. So yes, what did, what did you think overall of this? I th- it was smooth. I I thought the art was great. This was for something that's been stretched out as far as it has with the Black Spectre story. The chapters, even when they're stretching, they'll have something to to keep bringing you in, mm-hmm. which is you know you've taken it through not just a couple of issues of one book. You've jumped over to another book, and I happily went with the ride. It's interesting that the way they decided to cross it over into Marvel 2-in-1, though, because there really is no reason you needed to do that. But I guess Gerber just decided, yeah, I might as well have a little fun with this, bring the thing in. But the only thing about it that doesn't ring true is the very end when the thing goes his own way. Yeah. He should have been a guest star in the next two issues. Well, next three issues, excuse me. Yeah, it should have been. I agree with you. I mean, exactly what you said with the synopsis. Why would you need an ally that's super strong against and, and, a, a and very large terrorist organization? And who's got a, a reason to be angry at them. Mm-hmm. Which that's a little uncharacteristic for the thing also, because he wouldn't just say, oh, yeah, okay, you go. He would be like, screw that, I'm coming. Yeah. Nobody puts the, the, the thing in the corner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's that's the only thing that didn't play well for me in this story. Otherwise, it's kind of like a little bit of an interlude in the story that we started last episode, and, but still kind of bringing us along, because now we have seen that Black Widow has been turned somehow. Uh, you know, oh, uh, we, didn't, we didn't get any more hints on what the Black Spectre is, though. Because last issue, if you remember, he says, is it true I've been fighting a uh, blank? Well, that's in our our next issue. Yeah, but I, I'm surprised they didn't give us a little something when yeah, he was fighting the soldier. Yeah, a little bit. Put a little so carrot that, out there for us to chase. A metaphorical yeah. carrot, just for those wondering. Now, so far, I mean, we, ha- we have yet to actually see the leader who, you know, I mean, we might as well not try and hide it. It is the mantle. Uh, <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> But we haven't really seen him yet, other than that when the the thing pulled off his cowl, he somehow hypnotized him. Mm-hmm. So, so far, we've really only seen Necra. And as far as I knew, this was the introduction of her. I didn't realize she had already been introduced in Shanna, which is why I'm kind of inclined to say maybe we should cover those two issues down the road where Necra and Mandrill first appear. Maybe. Uh, but, see, I mean, they're both presented now as like C and D list villains. And I found her to be genuinely frightening in this. One of the things that have, have gone against Necra is the character by Doug Minch in the in Batman. 
it also same. I mean, very very similar in, in vampiric appearance, etc. I cannot remember her name all of a sudden, but she uh, for some reason the vampire characters they're so interchangeable. But that I mean, Necra never had a chance in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Mandrill. Man, I, I'm going to save that comment because when you find out about Mandrill and what he is willing to do and what he probably did, it's chilling. He's a very scary villain, and I, I would, I would, if I were writing Daredevil, Mandrill would be coming back in a big way. Yeah, I don't understand why they've relegated him to being a mort. He should, he should be a scary villain. Mm-hmm. He's he's strong. He's got hypnotic powers, and he's he's like devious and full of hate. Yeah. I mean, it's like the character writes itself at that point. Mm-hmm. I remember them doing him in the, uh, I think it was in the Avengers cartoon when they had the breakout of uh, from one of the, the prisons and he stands up against one of the Avengers and he just kind of starts doing like monkey moves, you know. Oh. And, and, they, and they, they dispatch him in like, you know, two seconds. And yeah, they turn him into a punchline. Yeah, and and that that kind of bothered me. I I'd forgotten it, about that. Part of it is that he was the villain of the first storyline I read in this comic, so you know I guess that that makes you know nostalgia come in a little bit. But well, I also that's thought Stiltman has a special place in my heart. Well, I I think you know I I kind of go with the thought of there's no bad characters, there's just bad writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think even characters like the stilt man, you know, who's who you could see the flaws with his design and, and why it's not the most intelligent armor to have created. Uh, but I think if well written, you could still come up with good stories for him. I can pitch you a story right now with stilt man. Did you want Over to do the, that? I'll, I'll drop. Yeah, we'll go on a tangent. That's fine. The idea I had was twofold. One. Over the years, Stiltman has embedded his technology in the basements of several new buildings in New York. Countless, you know, a handful. We just don't know which ones. But essentially, with his Stilt technology at that base, all he has to do is trigger it, and that building goes down. So, bear in mind, I'm doing an elevator pitch here. The other thing is, I had the idea for, at the simultaneous, as, as he's starting to do build up a, a nice terrorist plot... To extort money, he's developing Stiltman Academy. He's training other people to use his stilts. So now you've got a small army of stilt people. So Daredevil's got to figure out basically which buildings that uh, Stiltman has rigged and avoid the, his his new students, his proteges. Mm-hmm. There's the premise. If Marvel wants to use it, please, Charles Soule, go right ahead. It's all yours. <laughs> I've, I've, I've done the hard work for you because. Any building, any time, Stiltman could just say, nope, done. I think you probably have to give him a little bit more weaponry in his armor. A little bit more. And my, in my idea, Stiltman is – the reason for the Stiltman Academy in this last you know, attempt is that Stiltman has found out he's got cancer and he's dying and he's desperate and he's relentless. He's creating a legacy for himself. Yep, exactly. There you go. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'll read it. Yeah. So, so there you uh, go. You get a little bonus this episode. We, we didn't get a real life with Dr. Bill, but you got a, a pitch <laughs> time with Dave. <laughs> Maybe that'll be a new feature. So I'm just kind of going through the book a little bit quickly. And the first page, the splash page, 
it's kind of interesting because it looks like a split page. It doesn't look like it's one picture. And I'm not sure it was always intended to be one picture, but it kind of is. I can see it. Well, I mean, mine's in black and white because I only have it in the essential. It's not a Marvel Unlimited, but that I can see it, but it doesn't immediately jump out, probably because the color deviation isn't there. Well, they do have a deviation between the side where the where the thing is uh, lifting his weights is yellow background, and where Wondar is is a blue background. But it it kind of looks like that's just the you know when you turn the page. It looks like they are in that proximity to each other, which just says to me that there's just a wall that's there, mm-hmm. and that's what's cutting it off. Yeah, like so the machinery. Yeah, it's interesting because it looks like a split page, but I don't think it's supposed to be. That's cool. I I think I love the. I mean, it's not quite Kirby Tech, but it, it comes. It's a very passable substitution. Yes. It is pretty well done. I like the fact that the barbell he's lifting is actually uh, bending under its own weight. Yep, two 5,000-pound weights. So he's he's casually lifting 10,000 pounds. Oh, you know what? I didn't even think of that because I, I just saw 5,000 pounds and thought he was mm-hmm. lifting 5,000. But you're right. That's a 5,000-pound weight on that side and a 5,000-pound weight on the other side. But no, let's would... leave that guy at home when we go after a large terrorist organization. <laughs> but then, But then he just takes it and throws it over his shoulder. <laughs> Do you think do you think in the Marvel Universe New York that an explosion from the Baxter building is, is pretty pretty common? I think so because the way the police officer reacts. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's almost like it's it's like it's a nuisance. Yeah. Not not like it's a shock. Oh, there goes Richards again, some sort of science. I'll call the cleanup crew. And I've criticized recently certain books where I thought some of the Facial renderings were too simplistic as to make them look cartoony. And I'm now going to kind of turn that around a little bit because on the panel where, uh, or on the page where he talks to the police officer, the middle panel on the bottom Mm -hmm. is a very simple picture of Daredevil's face, but I find it compelling and I like it a lot. Yeah, that's where he uses a lot of shadow, but yeah, actually it looks plausible. And when you look at the line work and break it down, there's not much there. But at the same time, what's there works really well. Yeah, and it looks like it's a mask on a, on a person. Not Yeah. It doesn't look like the mask is his face, which sometimes I think people kind of draw it that way. Yep. There's a bit of a texture. Why, again, okay. why did Daredevil try to steal the Fantastic car if he doesn't know how to drive it? Yeah, that was just dumb. <laughs> I, I think that was he was in a rush and he wasn't. He wasn't thinking straight, so I, I can kind of explain it away with that. Uh, and then I, I just find it amusing that he, the way he tries to kick the thing, and the thing is like, <laughs> yeah, no, not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm trying to think at this point how many times they would have met, and I don't think there's very many. Uh, there's the one, you know, the blind man shall lead them. That's probably the most pivotal mm-hmm. uh, story. But it, between that and this, I Thing. I'm trying to remember. There's the one issue There's where one uh, more where he switched with Doom, and then and, they had to team up. Battle of the Baxter Building. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's that's in Daredevil 38 and 39, if I remember right. Yes. And then an issue of Fantastic Four. But that was. I mean, that was. I believe that might have been the last time, if I'm not mistaken. There's one. There's an issue of Fantastic Four around issue 75 or so where uh, it has the cover and it has 
Fantastic Four, and then I know Thor and Spider Man, and I'm trying to remember there was a third guy. I'm trying to remember if it was Daredevil. It was Daredevil. Yeah, it was. That Daredevil. was the Battle of the Baxter Building. That was the culmination of the Doctor Doom plot. Oh, okay, that's the same. Okay, yeah, same that's one. Right. That's that's where it tied into 38 and 39 of Daredevil. Okay, and I think you're right. I think that was the last time that they crossed paths. So there would only be the the two real storylines, and then maybe you know you might have a little cameo or something. You know, for I don't know if Daredevil was at you know Reed and Sue's wedding or something like that. But and I don't not, know when maybe. the issues with where Daredevil's defending the Hulk occurred, if it was before or after this, but it might have been right around this. That time. was before this. Okay, so that would have been the last time that they had any kind of cross over. Because I know Spider-Man was there, I know the FF was there. Yeah, that At least Reed Richards was. That was the Hulk around issue 130 or so, give or take a few. And just I know because this is when I first started collecting comics, at this point the Hulk was in the 170s. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Because I know I covered those on Dave's Daredevil podcast. Still available if you want to listen to that. And recommended listening if you haven't listened already. And even if you have. The uh, the slave to me looks like, or the actor portraying a slave looks like, to me that's like typical Steve Gerber character model. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a caricature. And you can debate the taste of that, but I mean, realistically, it's it's meant to be a caricature because mm-hmm. it's it's a caricature within the story itself as well. Now, when when Hitler blows his brains out, and you cut to the audience, <clears throat> you look, and the the guy in the front has got you know very long gray hair, and I think it's just meant to be like kind of that artsy Greenwich Village type people. Yes. And then, you know, in the 1970s, that would be the stereotype that we're getting there. That's why I hear bongo drums, like just some sort of bad beat poet, which is a little later, you know, a little bit late for that, but that's where my brain goes. Imagine Hitler doing some slam poetry. Wow. Okay, now moving on, what do you? What was Reed Richards thinking when he designed this outfit? <sighs> what the heck is going on with that... that vesty jacket thing which is not symmetrical it, at least it, at least the submariners is symmetrical yeah but he says it is the it follows the patterns of force in one dar's body so we get a star trek reference for one <laughs> um patterns of force in the body so i guess if you look at the seams they're a little bit thicker maybe that's containment fields yeah that's where what his I, body that's what i figured they were that's as close as I can no prize that because that thing and is ugly. The thing does mention not as classy as the one you did for Submariner. True. Just comment on that. And Wonder, I like. I like. Wonder the, seems to like it. <laughs> yeah, he, he he seems to be impressed. I like the sequence with when when he grabs Daredevil. The, the three panels where yeah. he's, hold, he's holding him aloft. Daredevil kicks him, and then we go back to just about the same exact positioning yeah. as before he kicked him. Completely only unfazed. Yeah, only, only Daredevil looks very phased. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, the, their interplay is great when they land on the, the dirigible or the jet craft, and they both have that back and forth, yep, at the same time. Mm-hmm. I love that. I like that they they have some rapport. That there actually seems to be a connection there. And it, it kind of comes off, as you'd want in a team-up, like a buddy comedy. Yeah. And it, I... You know, just keeping moving it forward. When when the 
You okay, puppy? Yeah, good girl. Uh, when when the thing gets hypnotized, the way his eyes become like bright blue. Yeah. Well, I can't. Oh, you can't see it in yours. In in the in the comic, his eyes, the the entire eye is drawn blue. Oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense. I guess to show that his pupil dilated. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because it it looked a little cartoony, but now that you put it in perspective, I can see that perfectly. And then, like I said, the one weakness I have for this is that the thing would never just say, "Okay, go ahead." Yeah. So but. I, <laughs> But, you know, I guess for plot. <laughs> for plot, yeah. So I guess we could rate this one now. And since I did the synopsis, I'll go first. Uh, I like the cover a lot. That one weakness I said is the action lines on the thing, but that doesn't take too much away from it. I'm going to say a B-plus on the cover. Uh, I think they're both featured very well. You know, any, any anybody on the newsstand is going to see it, see both heroes, you know, prominently placed. Uh, they're showing action. They are showing something we are going to kind of get in the story, a little different because it's not a building, it's the dirigible, and the thing goes in first and then Daredevil comes along later, but close enough to what we get in the plot. Uh, I always, not always, I generally have an issue with word balloons on the bubble. I don't think they're usually necessary. But in this one, at least it's giving us a little something, because mm -hmm. if not for the words that we get, we wouldn't know that the Black Widow wasn't on his side in there. Yeah. So that that's at least giving us a hint of the storyline. Uh, the inside artwork, I think, is very solid. I think it's, as we said, very clean, good storytelling, some decent action sequences, paced very well, really, you know, Nice, smooth read, smooth artwork. I'm going to say a B-plus on the interior artwork as well. Story is trippy. Uh, it's got, you know, it's got that interlude feeling, but it still feels like we're moving the plot along. Uh, my my only real complaint about it is the fact that the thing didn't come with them when it's over. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go B pluses all around, and that's obviously what I'm gonna give the book since that's what I'm giving all the ratings. Gotcha. We're not too far off. Um, I'm gonna give I'm gonna flat B across the board. I think I love this cover. I love the perspective, but it's it's too much at that points if you start really picking it apart. Now at a glance, it's gorgeous, and you start really having to look close. That's not a Bad thing entirely, but I I did take it down a notch because of that, because it's just it's 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 hard it's a hard sell. But I agree with you that the the word balloons do put it in perspective, but the art should do that on its own. Um, interior art, I'm going to stay with the B because actually I'm going to give it a B plus. I'll, I'll kind of go with what you said because I think it's just shy of of, of being fantastic, you know, above board. I mean, there are some great moments uh, in motion. The characters look on model perfectly. As you mentioned, they do great things with shadows. Uh, story. Story, I'll give a B plus as well. So I think all in all, I average out pretty close to a B plus is where I'm going to lean overall. Uh, we're not too far apart at all. All right. So that's the third book in our six book storyline. So we'll do one more tonight. And that one is yours, Dave. Yes. And that one is we're back to Daredevil with issue number 110, which is the June 1974 issue. Uh, this time we've got a cover by John Romita, the original. And Daredevil's fighting a bunch of Black Spectre troops as the Mandrill, the leader, appears on a view screen stating that Daredevil must die tonight. 
I I have a soft spot for this cover as well. I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's it's also busy, but not not as overly complex as the last one. No, I mean it's. Uh, I, I'll tell you from the cover. I wasn't able to tell when I first read this that the leader slash mandrel is on a view screen. Mm-hmm. I almost thought that was like a cutaway insert. Um, it, and you know what? You might be right. Because it just I, occurred to me that that's within Daredevil's radar sense. So, yeah, I'm not sure now. <laughs> Actually, uh, now, that may be, I don't know which is better. I actually like the radar sense. He's outside. They're on a building. That's that's happening within Daredevil's radar sense. That elevates the cover for me, to be honest with you. Okay, you know, and now that we've talked it out, because I didn't, I didn't quite get that either. Uh, I just, like I said, I just saw it as an insert, and yeah, just just for dramatic effect. But now you pointed out that there's the uh, the concentric circles just within that particular vi- uh, image. Yeah. Uh, so that means he's picking that up while he's fighting with the goons. Now the goons on the cover, for some reason, instead of having black outfits, they have green outfits, and that's kind of an unforgivable mistake. But that's not John Romita's fault. Mm-hmm. They look more like Hydra than Black Spectre. Yes. And if you look close at the one closest to us, where that Daredevil's kicking right in the face, you can see that's very clearly a burly man. Yeah. Well, I don't think John Romita probably even knew where the storyline was going on that. No. And the only other. Criticism I could give you is just from a proportion point of view. Daredevil looks a little smallish compared to the people he's fighting. I I don't hold that against it because I I think I mean he's always going to be leaner and these are just big brutish thugs. In big armor as well. At least that's my read on it. Yeah. Okay. You know I'll take that. But, I mean, I do like the image. Um, yeah. We're nitpicking on a lot of little things on it, but I do really like the image. Uh, I, I like the action of it. I like the fact that there's a guy behind him who's coming up trying to clobber him with what looks to be like a wrench or something. Yeah. This one, Like I said, this one's it's got a lot going on, but not as much as the other one where you know, the eye keeps jumping around. But I've kind of elevated it in my head now that I realize a little bit more of what we're seeing. Yeah, we have to talk it out. See, this is not meant for an 11-year-old to... No. (laughs) But as far as what's inside, we have a story entitled Birthright, written again by Steve Gerber, but this time the art, at least in pencil form, is by Gene Colan. Gene the Dean. I think uh, I feel the need to say the great Gene Colan when you say it. And if anybody wants to argue with you, I'll fight them. Uh, The inker, oh boy, is Frank Ciaramonte. I've never heard of him. Oh yeah, no, he's he was he did a lot back in that day in that okay. era. Uh, lettered by Artie Simek, Simek. I don't know if I've ever said it correctly. And colors are by Linda Lesman. Here's a neat I, I like topic. to think of it as Les Lesman. Yes, Les Walls. He's got his tape on the floor for Walls. Yeah, for KOP. As God is my witness. Well, that was um, what's his name? Yeah, that was Gordon that was Jump, the big guy. Yeah, Mr. Um, Never noticed there's a lot of females in the coloring spectrum. So, that, I mean, that could be a very good documentary if somebody's a documentarian. Just throwing it out there. Full yeah, of ideas it, today. It, it is an interesting factoid. And I'm not a. I, I know there were a lot that were, like, you know, significant others to some of the males that worked there. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know if it's these women worked as inkers and then they got involved with these guys and that's how they became the significant others, or if it was the other way around, that they were involved in them and that's how they got the job. But that would, that would, if it was the latter, that would, to me, be almost a lack of respect for the need of having talented color people. But I don't see any problems with the colors we've seen from them. Yeah, I generally don't. So I'm I'm willing to take take the leap of faith that these were women who were talented in that, who mm-hmm. got these jobs, and then ended up in romantic relationships with people they worked with. Yep, that's my theory. But that's a topic for if anybody wants to explore that in, in, in full. You know, here I am. I'm, I'm handing out stuff for free tonight. <laughs> um, our issue, however, opens with Daredevil and the Thing picking up right where we left off, flying in the Fantastic Car, basically licking their wounds after the handy defeat they just received. The Thing mentions that the leader that they faced was the ugliest thing he'd seen besides looking in a mirror. This clicks something in Daredevil's head. So he takes his leave of the Thing, quickly comes upon more Black Spectre troops, and basically they have an odd colorful tattoos. Oh, pardon me. Um, But he handily dispatches these troops, learning that the troops are all women. Daredevil goes to... (laughs) Daredevil goes to police station where the women are being held. But not for long, since they technically didn't do anything illegal when Daredevil beat him up. Uh, but he learns that they have odd, colorful tattoos on their faces, and then the women explode. Not a joke on that. Dead serious. Just as Shauna the She-Devil arrives at the police station, the women literally explode. They blow themselves up and die to protect the secrets of Black Spectre. Back at Black Spectre's flying headquarters, Necra and the Black Widow inform the leader of the deaths, and the leader declares it's time to call on Daredevil. So Hornhead gets back to his hotel, comes face to face with the leader, who has been informed of his secret identity by the Black Widow, and the leader unmasks to reveal Old Man Dithers, who runs the haunted amusement park. He would have gotten away with it, not for you rotten superheroes. <laughs> uh, just kidding, it's, it's, it's a baboon-faced Mandrill, who decides to unload his entire biography on Daredevil and the reader. Mandrill and Necra, just to kind of consolidate this, they were the results of mutation. Necra's mother was an African-American woman. Mandrill's father was a Caucasian man. They worked at a lab and they got radiated and didn't notice anything at the time until the babies were born. The Mandrill's born, you know, very looking very African-American to two Caucasian parents. He's all hairy and ape-like. Necra, being born to African-Americans, was very porcelain pale and vampire-like. So both children were rejected. Uh, eventually they ran away to find one another and partner up, remaining hidden what they would do was learn by stolen books, listening in to the school lessons outside the classroom. But, and this is to my great shame, they were discovered in a small town in Missouri. And a lynch mob showed up, but Necra turned on the power of hate. And the mob turned on one another. Uh, they got mopped up real good. Necra basically became invincible with the power of hate. And later, apparently, they learned Mandrill's power was discovered was that he instills complete trust and servitude in women making him his slaves. So now Mandrill and Necra have built Black Spectre to overthrow the United States government. And with that declaration, Daredevil attacks the Mandrill, and the fight is intense but brief, spilling into the streets below, where a crowd gathers which confuses Daredevil's radar sense, and the Mandrill gets away again. And the issue closes with the frustrated Daredevil again lamenting another defeat at the hands of Black Spectre. Now... The one thing that, the one inconsistency, and maybe you can explain it away for me, is he has hypnotic powers over women. Mm-hmm. 
So how did he hypnotize the thing last time? I was gonna I was gonna ask you the same question. So um, I, I assume he has some degree of hypnotic power over all sexes because the actors in the last issue were they were tra- uh, hypnotized as well. Perhaps. Oh, okay. My my no prize explanation does not work. Then. I was gonna say perhaps he's able to immobilize men, but actually has women do his bidding. Mm. But that would not jibe with what happened with the actors. No, I think I think the effects may be that he's able to put a hypnotic suggestion into a man's brain or immobilize them. But women are and this is terrifying to think of, but they're just com- they give themselves completely. So there's more of a I don't want to say a willingness because that's not right, but there's a complete immersion for for a female for some reason, whether it's pheromones, what have you. But let's see, and I, I prefer to think of it as being a pheromones, and then maybe you could explain it away saying he has low-level hypnotic powers mm-hmm. and pheromones. So the pheromones act on the opposite sex, and that's what gets them completely. And the hypnotic power is maybe somewhat more limited or somewhat less long-lasting. I would I would buy into that. Okay, I don't know if that's what they were thinking when they wrote this, but we'll go with it. And is that... Are they flying over the the Empire State Building in the opening page? Uh, I would say it looks to be, yes. Yeah. It doesn't look that. right. Was that before... Yeah, we were... That's what I was thinking, but is that before they put the railing on? I couldn't tell you. Because it looks like that's where the observation deck would be. But uh, there's no, I mean, uh, there's no people. <laughs> no people. And, you know, none of the very tall railings that keep people from jumping off. You touch that thing and the guards will smack you. Mm-hmm. Which is understandable. I mean, that's a lot of damage to be done. Oh, yeah. But mostly the main point I wanted to make is, hey, Paul and I have both been there together. And, and we have picture proof. And and you know what? It's the only time I was ever up there. <laughs> it's probably the only time I'll ever be up there. And we, I mean, probably. How long were we herded? We were herded like cattle for like was it half an hour, forty five minutes, something like that. And then I mean it was it was beautiful, terrifying, but beautiful. But yeah, it's not something I want to repeat again. I had been in the Empire State Building on numerous occasions in the past, but I never went up to the obs- observation deck until that day. Oh, that's interesting. It's just like everything Everything that was touristy to us is stuff you're like, yeah, I'm good. I've never done it before, but I'll do it for you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's certain things, you know, I don't know. It's, there's certain things you take for granted when you have access to it, even if you've never done it. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, we we walked by St. Patrick's Cathedral that, that day. Mm-hmm. I had never been in there, and then... About a year ago, I was in there because we were in the area and we had a little time to kill and we went inside. Place is gorgeous. I had yeah. never been in there before. But again, we di- we we uh, we digress. <laughs> uh, Gene Collins' art, I love it. I I, love I will always art. love it. <laughs> I think it could be a little bit more cleanly inked in here. There's certain panels, uh, and and I think a lot of people have have problems with Gene Colon. What I always say when I'm describing Gene Colon is 
everybody looks like they're in motion. Every shot looks like it's a candid photograph as opposed to a posed picture. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the inkers have a little bit of a trouble, ca- you know, a little bit of trouble capturing that because every picture has movement. And I go to uh, page six where he's got the fight scene with the Black Spectre, and it's got to be difficult to ink these pictures and not have them look like static images. No, agreed. And Tolan, at least later down the road, he was so proficient with the pencils that they would skip inking altogether and just print the pencils. Which was probably the best thing they could do with his work. Yeah, because he's he's very unique. He's not fine art. He's not quite Steve Rude where it's, you know, it's on the verge of fine art or Alex Ross, but he's not your typical comic artist either. There's a oh, moodiness no, and, as you mentioned, emotion to his art. And it's interesting, if you follow his career a little bit, back when he was, and now I'm drawing a blank, he was going under a different name uh, on Iron Man, uh, mm. back when he was under contract, I believe, with DC, but he was try- you know, trying to get extra work, so he would do stuff for Marvel under under a different name. And when he first started doing it, you could see he was really just kind of going with the house style. And then as it went on, all of a sudden, you saw that Gene Colan style uh, that unique style that he had come out, mm-hmm. and it just you know it went from not so great house style to awesome individual style. Yeah, in the course of like two months, it, it, it's it's really you know it's very stark when you see it happen. Well, I mean, we have one of Gene Colan's trademarks here. It's on page three when he's swinging by the clock, which I assume is Grand Central Station, and. As you mentioned the motion, I mean, you see the flagpole doing its thing. I, again, I, I've said this a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more. Give me a whole book of Gene Cullen, and I guess it's too late now, but just Daredevil swinging around the New York. Mm-hmm. And I, I would – no plot. Just give me something beautiful. I would read it, and that's just – that's a prime example. Well, I think the, the, the panel right before that where you have one, yeah. two, three, four, five, six images of him flipping through the sky, and, you know, they're all – in different positions, but it just looks so great. Yeah. I've, I've never found, I mean, Colin's had his weak moments, but he's never been terrible. Then and if you go to page six, uh, where he, the page I was just talking about earlier, where he's kicking the uh, Black Spectre soldier in the face, mm-hmm. that's kind of a typical Gene Colin thing, too, where the force of the kick creates a, like a burst. Yeah. Which then covers up the person's face that you don't see it, but it also lends itself to that movement feeling. Yep. Or or, or just, I'm, I'm sorry to keep uh, hogging the spotlight here, but just on the last panel on page six, the way he has the Black Spectre person jumping at, at Daredevil, it's a very atypical pose. You don't see too many artists that would go at it from that angle. In fact, off the top of my head, I can't think of any artist I would see going at it from that angle. No, and I just realized, you remember the Gantre Lawrence Marvel superhero cartoons that basically animated panels? Yes. When I look at this, that's what I think of. There's a sense of, as awkward as those were, it's kind of reversed here, where you have a truly animated feeling on a static page. As opposed to an animation where it feels like a static page. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I would, I, would, I would say it's a, it's a good contrast there. Uh you know, I, I, there's, there's certain things where, where it's like you look at it and you know it could only have been drawn by Gene Colan. Mm-hmm. The top panel on page seven, 
where it's showing things through Daredevil's radar sense. I was going to mention I think, that. I don't no, think anybody else ever drew scenes that looked quite like that. No, if there's ever a signature artist for Daredevil, it is Gene Colan. I mean, and I'm sure certain Frank Miller fans would have. Uh, right now, they're like their jaws dropping. But yeah, I, I will. I will say this to Frank Miller fans: I have nothing against his Daredevil work. His art he drew from Colan, and he also drew from Will Eisner. Colin him or Frank Miller himself has said, "If you're going to steal, steal from the best." And, and Miller did. Miller innovated, and then you saw other artists play with that. But Gene Colan is the foundation of that. Yeah, I agree. I think you know, I, you know, sometimes greatness is greatness comes from building on other greatness. Mm-hmm. And I think Gene Colan is to Daredevil what Kurt Swan is to Superman. Not everybody's cup of tea, but pretty damn definitive. Uh, see, I, I think I think Gene Colan's Daredevil is more, more uh, close to me, more closely aligned than Kurt Swan's. And Kurt Swan was my Superman artist when I grew up, mm-hmm. but I didn't feel that Kurt Swan really broke new ground with Superman so much, whereas I feel like Dare, uh, Gene Colan did with Dare. Well, Gene Colan did in general. Yeah, uh, but but I think Daredevil was pretty much his signature work. Oh, of, all, of all the series he did, it's either Daredevil or Tomb of Dracula. Ooh, as far yeah. as being the one that you would most closely uh, associate with him, and they both they're both high quality. By the way, the, the entire run of Tomb of Dracula is on Marvel Unlimited. Treat yourself. <laughs> yeah, please. It t- takes a few issues for that. To get its legs, but once it does, it's a great series. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we have the revelation that Daredevil's been fighting women this whole time. Yeah, and once he has, once we have that re- re- revelation, then you cut to the ship and uh, the women don't have the masks on. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, we don't need to anymore because the readers know. It's. It's disturbing to think about that. I mean, just the level that of control Mandrill has over these people, these women. And, of course, we live in an era of Me Too, so I I couldn't help but think of somebody like Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein who abused power. Mm. And that made this particular story just run a little bit – it made my blood run a little bit colder. But, I mean, that was, of course, that was things like that happening then. Yeah, well, you got to think think that that's, that's the subtext to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And and now when he first reveals himself, it's both chilling and comical at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> in its own way because I mean he does have I mean he's got the face of a mandrel. It's hard to take that totally serious and seriously, and yet he is frightening. Well, so I mean, yeah, there's that initial knee jerk reaction. Oh, it's a monkey. But if you've ever faced at the zoo, if you ever learn about mandrels or baboons, they'll they'll freaking kill you easily and painfully. I like the origin story. I mean, you know, un, un, except for the fact that they go to the typical Marvel trope. You mm-hmm. know, radiation doesn't give you cancer. It gives you superpowers. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, uh, I, I kind of like, you know, the, the contrast that the white couple has the darker-skinned mutated baby. The black couple has the not only white, but albino yeah, uh, mutated baby. Uh, I found Necra, I still find Necra to be you know very frightening in the way she's presented, uh, and and the shot where 
the mandrel's parents had enough, and he drives him out and leaves him in the desert to die. Yeah, that's hard. The car is driving away, and you see him like calling out to the car. It, it is, you know, you like you you kind of start to you don't agree with his motivations, but you understand them. Yeah. And I love the idea that these two found each other. I mean, the fluke of fate and all, but they found each other. So they weren't alone, but they were outcast together. Except he says that we were the first victims of mutation. Suddenly Charles Xavier's like, ah, try again. Yeah, really. And then the scene when they, they're attacked by the mob in Romania. Nope, that's oh. in Missouri. Oh, okay. I thought it was at, Fr- at Dracula's Castle. Now, it just happened down the road, <laughs> but it does look like it does look like Dracula's castle. And they they got their pitchforks and stuff when yep. they're coming after him. I mean, you know, it just seems like a scene right out of one of those movies. But I I, I like you know when she's, I guess, starting to understand the power of hate for her. Mm-hmm. And then again, you know, Gene Colan motion, the mandrel, like you could see, you know, you could practically see in a still fo- in a still image him jumping up, grabbing that tree, and kicking somebody. Yeah. And the the pitchfork bending when it hits Necra. Yeah, and and the the gunshot that just bounces off of her. I mean, just just you know, really well drawn. And because of the smaller panels, you do feel like this happens very very quickly. It's just yes. a flurry of motion and it's done. And there's kind the, of a there's a Wolfman okay. vibe. A little bit, yeah. When he's picking the guy up in front of the tree, and mm-hmm. I don't I don't have the page number here. This is page six, page sixty. Yeah. Thirty in the in the comic, oh, sixty gotcha. in 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 what you whatever you in the uh, essential, and uh, you know we get to the to the to the fight scene between Daredevil and the Mandrel, and like you said, it's it's very quick, mm-hmm. but you could see, you know, he's he's a tough customer. Well, it, I like it, that he's he removes his cloak calmly, like you know, like they're getting ready to box. That reminds me, like in my mind, I picture like Ra's al Ghul. Mm-hmm. Yes, very good example. Like just Quentin. calmly, like okay, now we're gonna do it, and yeah. And he takes him and just throws him out the window. Prepare yourself, detective. <laughs> then just yes, him exactly. Down. Which I mean, I don't know that the windows on the Hilton. No, it was okay. So Daredevil had come in that window, and suddenly he's getting thrown out of it. The window was open. I assume maybe he went out a different window because there's curtains. Never mind. And there, and there, are all, and there, are, there is broken glass all around him. And yeah. he's flying through the air. That's what I was wondering. I guess it's not the window he came in through. Came in through the bathroom window. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Did, did, I don't know if you're taking me seriously or if you got my reference there. <laughs> that's I didn't a Beatles, get the reference. That's a Beatles song. Oh, gotcha. Okay. She came in through the bathroom window. I didn't okay. catch that reference. It went over my head. I'll confess it. Okay, it's now, so I, I got to take the blame for that then. <laughs> if, if you say a joke and people don't get it, it's your own fault. Uh, I like the fact the way Mandrill is swinging away at the end. It's kind of like he made his point and he's moving on right now. It's kind of like King Kong as well. <laughs> yes. And then what do we get next? Can it get any wilder than this? Don't answer until after you've met the Silver Samurai. But not that Silver Samurai. Apparently. Is it a different character? Uh, I'd have to reread it. I thought it, it was does the same seem guy, like but I don't it is, know. Because it doesn't, yeah, but it, I think it is the same, actually. It's been a long time since I reread that. I'm, I'm holding off until 
we prepare for the next okay, round. Yeah, so before we start speculating on him, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll just stick with this issue for now and next time around, next week probably, uh, we'll get to that issue and, and take a look at that. But uh, you want to rate this? Yeah, um, this one, story-wise, I'll start with story. I think it was a little bit weaker because it felt like it was kind of spinning its wheels until it got to the mandrel telling his origin. Um, so I'm going to give it, I gave that a B plus. I'm going to go with a, a C plus. Yeah, a B minus. I'll go with B minus because it was, it was engaging at least. Cover art, um, I, I like this cover. I'm going to go ahead and give it a solid B plus. And then interior art, it's an A. It's Gene Cole. Well, no, I'm going to take it down to A minus because the inking is a little rough. So what is that average to? That's the I'll give it. I guess it'd be a flat B overall. Okay, you you pretty much. I don't know if I'm exactly on the same spots with you, but you pretty much gave all my thoughts on it. <laughs> uh, you know, the cover I think is pretty solid. Uh, I really like it. The you know, I guess my biggest criticism is just that Daredevil should be just slightly bigger. Mm. But other than that, I really don't have any criticism, so I'm going to say a B plus. The interior art, you, you, it's like you spoke my words there. I think the penciling is beautiful. I think the inking is slightly lacking. It's not terrible, but it could just be a little stronger. So I'll say uh, a B on the interior art. Uh, and the story, I think I'm a little higher on the story than you are. I didn't mind the lack of action early on. I, I was just kind of intrigued by the whole plot as it went along. So I'm going to say a B-plus on the story again, because I just, I'm really enjoying the heck out of it, and I think I'm going to give the book, I'm going to, I'm going to be at a B with, along with you on the book gotcha. overall. So, so far, for the last two, I mean, four installments, we're rating them fairly high, which is good. That means we're, we're, we're basically working on something of quality. That mean that means my my nostalgia isn't only nostalgia because I I think we've all had the experience where you read a book when you're a kid and you think it's really really good and then you get a chance to see it again you know many years later and it's like mm -hmm. oh yeah why did I think that was so good <laughs> so at least this one is is kind of holding up to my thought process well so far I'll say that if Marvel wanted to they have a pretty solid trade they could put out here. Yeah, well, that's why we're doing the Back to the Binge trade. Yep. If Marvel's listening, I, I think this one could be... Because I, I don't see it on a lot of top Daredevil story lists. I don't no. see it enough. And I think this is something that if they, they bound it and they I mean they pushed it right, it could reignite something because this is it's as timely now as it was then. I mean, you have terrorism, you have um, outcasts... Sexism sexism, this is something that could still be a hot-button issue. I mean, come on, Howard the Duck was re-released in omnibus form. There's a lot of social commentary in that. Gerber may have been ahead of his time here. Oh, but, Gerber was definitely ahead of his time. No question about it. I think he he was, uh, you know, I think he was seen a little bit as an oddball back then because he was so far ahead of his time. But yet you read Howard the Duck now and you totally get it. You read this now and you totally get it, so... Kudos to, to Steve Gerber. Yep. And sadly, we lost him too young. Yes, we did. So that's it for today's. And thanks for coming back again, Dave. Oh, my pleasure. It's like, and again, I'm making the joke that it's like I never left. I actually did left. We've slept since the last time we talked. Not together. Not together. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
That's <laughs> just so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well, you but, made the uh, joke I was going to make anyway, so. But uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll come back next week and we'll finish off this storyline. And then, like I said, I'd like to do the prelude to it. I don't know if we're going to get to it right away or if it's going to just kind of sit and hold for us for a little while. But I definitely would like to cover that as well. So that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time out when we cover Daredevil 111 and 112, which will wrap up this story. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true freaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Bill, move your head! <laughs>